Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. summer was an extraordinary time in Australia. 2019 was a year of deep drought across much of the country. We had very little rain. Towns ran out of water across central Queensland and New South Wales. And then there were the fires. Beginning in the north, fires spread down the Great Dividing Range from Queensland to Victoria over the course of a long, hot, dry summer. 240 million hectares were burned 33 people lost their lives, more than 3,000 homes were destroyed, and countless wildlife and animals were killed or injured. Australia has not had a summer like this on record, and the imprint of the changing climate was noticeable, with temperatures and conditions that were unprecedented. At the end of the summer, a Royal Commission was announced to understand the events and how we might better prepare for our future. Today's podcast is about that Royal Commission International Natural Disaster Arrangements, what we've learnt so far about Black Summer and what we should be learning as our changing climate shapes a growing risk of national natural disasters over the years ahead. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing our region. I'm Anagreta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. And today I'm without Sharon Bessel, who is working interstate. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. We're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School, of course, is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And I'd like to remind listeners again to check out the degree and short course programs that are available at Crawford. And you can do that on the website crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Here at ANU, the experiences of Black Summer weren't just a professional or academic interest. For many of us, it was a lived experience of smoke, of heat and of the threat of fire. Many parts of our university have responded to the bushfires with communication and research and engagement with our region and our nation, and in the the College of Health and Medicine particularly, we've been actively interested in the health impacts of the bushfires. The Royal Commission inquiry process and the report was quite a central part of our federal government's response to the disaster, and the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions has been particularly following the Royal Commission into the Institute, with the Institute making contributions to the Commission and into its report. So today's podcast brings together a group of us from ANU who have been following that Royal Commission report. We all contributed to so with submissions to the report, and we've been looking at how the report might play out in our community, considering how it affects our disciplines and how we might use the report for better future preparation. 
We are, as I mentioned, missing Sharon Vessel, our usual co-host, and I will try and play a dual role today, not just as host but also as contributor, as the four of us on today's panel have all worked with the Royal Commission report, participating in seminars at the end of 2020 here at ANU. And just recently, over the last few weeks, each one of us have hosted a, a series of, of workshops uh, looking at the Black Summer experience and considering the Royal Commission report. Those workshops have occurred in environment, military and defence response and the health response to both Black Summer and the Royal Commission. So it's with great pleasure I get to welcome colleagues to this a continuing discussion. Brendan Sargent, is Professor of Practice in Defence and Strategic Studies and he's head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. Brendan retired from the Department of Defence in October 2017 when he was the Associate Secretary of Defence from September 2013. He was the principal author of the 2013 Defence White Paper. Welcome, Brendan. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Michael Eburn's also with us today. Michael's an Honorary Associate Professor at the ANU College of Law. He's a leading researcher in the area of emergency services, emergency management and the law. His blog, Australian Emergency Law, is widely read and respected throughout the sector. And his current research on law and governance in emergency management is funded by the Australian Bushfire and Natural Hazards CRC. Welcome, Michael. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Good morning. And finally, Peter Konoski is Professor of Forestry at the Fenner School of Environment and Society. Peter's research focuses on forestry and environmental governance, on planted forest policy, and on education in forestry, environment and society and sustainability. And Peter's also Master of University House here at ANU. Welcome, Peter. Great to have you with us. Anna Greta and all. Great to be here. Excellent. So we're going to talk about the Royal Commission uh, International Natural Disaster Arrangements, and I think we should reflect on the Black Summer experience there. So I thought we might start just by framing it through the experience of Black Summer that each one of us had, perhaps both personally and professionally. What sort of tensions did that summer expose in your in your own lives or in your experience, but particularly through the, your own profession? Brendan, would you like to start? Uh, for me, it was pretty um, immediate because I was down the coast at Naruma or in a small community um, north of Naruma. And um, woke up one morning and it was dark and it shouldn't have been dark and went outside and could see the fires burning across at Carbogo. And at that point, we evacuated to Naruma, which was dark and smoky as well. And we spent the day there and then went back uh, and stayed a couple of days without power and then uh, managed to get back to Canberra. A normal two-hour drive was about eight hours. Uh, so that was interesting. But the thing that really struck me when I was there as I was looking at the evacuation and the management of that uh, was how thin our infrastructure is. Uh, and I thought that we could sustain this for a couple of days, but you couldn't sustain it for a week or months. Mm. And uh, and it was very interesting to watch the immediate response, uh, but I just thought, our infrastructure is thin, our capacity is thin, our ability to respond to major multiple events is thin. And I was reflecting on my time in the Department of Defence and that partly prompted it, but that was what really stood out for me at that time. Mm, absolutely. Peter, how about you? I recall um, I was in Canberra in 2003 when we had our last major bushfires here. I recall as others who were here might a sort of sense of concern as we had 10 days of fires burning in the hills to the west of us mm. before coming to Canberra on on that uh, on the 18th of January 
and in in a sense 2019-20 was a sort of replay of that over a much more extended time frame where we, as you said in the introduction, we we saw fires beginning in the north and sort of progressively making their way south in the sense that they would arrive at some point, as, as Brendan was just uh, reflecting. So that was that was one strong sense I had and a realisation that many colleagues who are engaged actively in firefighting, just how stretched they were in the in the way that Brendan's just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Professionally, it was also something of a deja vu because uh, after the 2003 fires, I was a member of the of the COAG National Bushfire Inquiry. And so to see the Royal Commission initiated and, and revisit many of the same themes that we'd revisited uh, was professionally mm-hmm. um, uh, interesting as well. Yeah, I think we'll have to touch later on on how well we learn from previous reports. Michael, how about you? How was your Black Summer experience? Mine wasn't nearly as direct. I was in Canberra at the time. I was watching the fires uh, out in the Namaji National Park lighting up the sky. I was mindful of the 2003 fires, but I hadn't been in Canberra in those times. So my experience really was very much as an observer. I was watching the news and watching the fires, but I didn't have any direct engagement with them. Mm, yep. My family were on the south coast. They were down past Eden um, in, and they have extraordinary uh, stories from that time, really extraordinary experiences for, for young children and in uh, disaster survival. But I was personally working at the hospital here in Canberra over that period and uh, certainly had spent uh, weeks beforehand talking about the health impacts of bushfire smoke and then to live through that experience. I was just reflecting, we as a group at, at the College of Health and Medicine, we came together um, and of course ANU is a campus was closed because of bushfire smoke and we couldn't access the buildings because the air pollution was so bad. So in that first week of January, a group of us from the College of Health and Medicine met at my office, uh, which is in town. Uh, And around the table is 12 or 13 of us and three people had been in the evacuation centres in the week beforehand. So it's very much a a part of our collective psyche now, that disaster experience, both personally and professionally. So if we perhaps go into what we might have learned, Peter, protecting people and assets, the environment, infrastructure and property is at the heart of bushfire management strategies. And your recent workshop looked at the inherent complexity of this. What have we learned from Black Summer about this inherently complex problem Mm. of managing resources? I think we've learned that we need to keep learning Mm. um, fundamentally. We had two uh, important contributions in that workshop that you referred to, Richard Thornton, who's the... Uh, Chief Executive of the Bushfire Natural Hazards CRC that's transitioning into a an, another form now, um, and Phil Gibbons, our colleague from the Fenner School, and they both worked on risk management in different ways. I think that we see over time we are transitioning nationally to much more of a risk-focused approach, and I think that's appropriate and necessary. But what we observed during Black Summer is that our capacity to manage that risk under extreme conditions was really limited, and I think that was what was frightening for those of us who've been working in um, forest management, landscape management uh, professionally, is to see those extreme conditions and the limits to our capacity to Mm. respond. So I think that's our big challenge for the future is recognising that those black summer conditions are going to become more the norm rather than the exception that we, Mm. we, they have been. It stretches our imagination, I think. 
Michael, I wanted to bring you in, in here thinking about jurisdictional tensions that arose over the Black Summer experience and the divides between state, federal and local responses, the legislative responsibilities. They, they all emerged as a challenge, particularly at the height of the summer at the end of 2019, early 2020. And it's one that's been a big theme through the Royal Commission. Can you describe your perspective on the challenges that are associated with this cross-jurisdictional management of a national disaster? I'm going to take what might be a controversial position. I want to go back a step. You said, what have we learned? And I think the, que- the problem with asking the question, what have we learned, begs the question of who is we? Members of the community might have learned that resources are thin and stretched and we have limited capacity. But I don't think members of the fire agencies, that that was learning anything new. They knew that. The federal government might have worked out that they didn't have a lot of power or resources to deploy. But anyone in the sector knew that. There have been calls for federal emergency management legislation, of which I've been one of the advocates, but not the only one, since certainly, well, way back to Cyclone, when Cyclone Tracy struck Darwin. So when you ask what did we learn, you really have to ask about which we are we talking about. In the sector, I didn't think Black Saturday taught us much that we didn't already know, that resources were thin, that there will always be events that overwhelm resources, that if you say the focus of fire and emergency management is to preserve lives and properties, and I don't mean to be at all cynical or downplay the tragedy of it, but 33 people died, you can cite that as a fabulous measure of success, mm. that in fact the systems in place achieved a lot of what they were meant to do. And the federal state arrangements were working, as far as I can see, really as they were meant to and well planned. States were sharing resources, resources were being shipped across. The federal government was embarrassed when they were asked things like, what are you doing? And when the then when the Prime Minister said something to the effect of, we wait for a request from the states and then we respond to that request, that, that was true. That was the plan. That was a plan that had been developed over years and practised and it worked. Now, suddenly it didn't seem politically popular, but I'm not sure that we learnt much from that. So when you say what these tensions were, when I look at it as an observer, I'm not sure they're all that obvious. The states were managing the response in their states. They were sharing resources where they could, and they were calling on the Commonwealth when they could. There was much demand for the ADF to be deployed in the media, which led to the very public calling up of the reserves. But if you'd read what the ADF were doing before that, they were well involved. Now, the ADF are not going to go out and fight fires. There's some sort of community expectation that they will. Well, perhaps what we need to learn is that the ADF are not going to go out and fight fires, not suddenly, oh, my goodness, we we have a lack of capacity because the ADF don't fight fires. They don't fight fires. That's not their job. But they were doing a huge amount in support. So when we say what have we learned, I find that a really difficult question. And as for those jurisdictional tensions you describe, I don't think they were new, unheard of or unplanned for. And as far as I can tell, it was actually all working pretty well. So there's nothing to learn on that, Brendan? Let's talk about how the military interface works. Or I agree with Michael in terms of uh, response and the way the system's set up and how it operates. But I think there are two big things that came out of last year. One is that the scale was enormous and the understanding that that's not going to go away. We're going to see more of that in the future. The question is not how we responded last year and whether it was okay. The question is response capacity in the future. 
And I think the second thing is that you have state commonwealth structures. They work pretty well because everyone knows each other and they rehearse and so on. But I think that there's a community dimension to this because no matter how many resources you pour in from the Commonwealth or the state, and they'll always be limited, there are issues of preparation, response, understanding, and so on. When we did our workshop, I thought one of the more interesting comments was about how we might think about the regulatory environment for building and management and so on, what unused capacity there might be in, say, the Commonwealth in terms of call centres and and so on. And I thought that the challenge going forward is thinking within a larger framework about the nature of emerging crises, the fact that there'll be multiple crises at the same time, including internationally at the same time, and how do we build capacity and understanding and risk management processes to to respond to that. Mm. I, I think the order of magnitude um, is coming up as a theme here, that the, the scale of what we had uh, unfolding was unprecedented um, and that our preparation then changes. Let's just flesh out a little bit about the military and their role. Is that unusual? I'm sure many people listening will remember watching the Navy arrive to evacuate people off the beach in, uh, in the, the was- east of Victoria. Is that unprecedented? Well, that was unusual. I thought that was pretty (laughs) shocking, actually, to see the Navy in Bass Strait doing that. To me, so the military has always provided support uh, to the civil power. The question is, what sort of support? And I think Michael's point is a a really important one. The military are not firefighters. Uh, They can do many things, but they're not law enforcement agencies. They're not firefighters. They have a particular role. So they're a resource that the government has, but... In my view, it's important to think about what you want to use that resource for. And for every decision you make to build it, say you want to build firefighting or law enforcement capacity into the military, that takes it away from doing its core role. So I think the question is not what do you need the military to do, but what sort of national capacity do you need in terms of disaster response? Where's that best located? And what are the contributions that different elements of state and commonwealth agencies can contribute and how do you coordinate that? But there is a reflex that, you know, the military can do everything Mm. uh, and to call them to do everything, I think that's a really big mistake Mm. uh, because there will be a day when you need the military to do military things. And if you're not ready for that, then... I have to say, that's what I read from the report is about developing systems that allow smooth transfer of information from the different jurisdictions, federal, state, and then giving local capacity because that's where the events are unfolding and helping communities to really respond. I know when I think about how well we we were prepared for that summer, I often find myself reflecting on on the health side of things. And I know in the health area, there were a large number of us who were concerned about the heat over 2019. And I spent a, a bit of time thinking about how to prepare communities for heat waves. We were all cognizant of the increasing fire risk. We were wondering about how towns operate without water supplies. But I don't know anybody who predicted a bushfire smoke problem. And I know that that we were unprepared for the public health issues associated with bushfire smoke and uh, smoke pollution. I do think if we'd sat down and prepared beforehand that we may have come up with it. I reckon if we'd had a room full of people from different perspectives that we may have arrived at someone suggesting that bushfire smoke might be an issue and it may not have got the attention that it deserved, but it would have at least been in the room. 
And so I felt like our health system was fairly underprepared for 2019-20 and that we've got an opportunity to prepare better in the future. Are these themes seen in the other jurisdictions? Peter, is this a theme that you would identify within environmental management? We know many people were out um, calling for increased preparation before the summer. Well, to begin with the issue of smoke, we've got plenty of experience with managing bushfire smoke in relation to fuel reduction burning or prescribed burning. That's been an issue um, increasingly over the last few decades. I noticed one of the quotes in the uh, Royal Commission report around the Sydney Basin being called the Sydney Basin because it collects, you know, smoke. Mm. And the land management agencies have got some pretty sophisticated modelling of smoke behaviour under control conditions. What we were unprepared for, I think, was the scale and duration of the smoke impacts. Mm. Um, and again, a foretaste of perhaps what we have to anticipate. Picking up from Brendan's comment about looking to the future, I also see that the that the Royal Commission report identified, I think, what's an underlying problem in our land management capacity, to put it in, in those terms, which is until the COVID economic response, larger government was unpopular. Uh, and so we've had the downsizing of land management agencies, the downsizing of their capacity to proactively manage landscapes, mm. reduced capacity to respond to events. And I think that that's a fundamental uh, lesson that I'd like us to reflect on um, as we look to the future. The Royal Commission rightly gave attention to the possibilities of uh, strengthening support for Indigenous and cultural burning. It's no more a panacea for what we experienced in 2019-20 than fuel reduction burning conducted by land managers is. But uh, it's an opportunity, I think, to empower uh, traditional owners and to build a, a different sort of partnership with land management agencies to everybody's benefit. So I think that there are some some starting points from the Royal Commission report that we really should be actively building on that will help us respond to these challenges in the future, though it won't remove the prospect of us having to face the sort of conditions that we we again that we did over that summer. Absolutely. We're going to take a very short break there and we'll be back in just one moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm, I'm still here today with Brendan Sargent, Michael Eburn and Peter Konoski. We've been discussing Black Summer and the Royal Commission report that it came from our experience here in Australia. In his opening comments, Commissioner Minskin comments that whilst the challenges of, of summer 2019-20 charted new territory, that unprecedented is not a reason to be unprepared. 
One of my favourite themes to emerge from that report is the charge to make us look to the future, to use what has been termed strategic imagination to see us better prepared for a future that is going to test potentially our imagination. So a central suggestion from the report is for Australia to better understand the climate risks ahead. Peter, the commissioners are charging us to look towards the future. What should we be planning for? Let's paint a little bit about the climate landscape that's ahead. Before I do that, I'm prompted by your quote from the commission to think of the emblem and motto above the Australian Forestry School building over in Yarralumla, opened in 1927. The motto is, we care for the future. So I'm going to put a plug in as a <laughs> professor of forestry that that's what we foresters do. <laughs> Clearly, we we need to anticipate for the foreseeable future in southern Australia, hotter, drier summers, uh, more extended periods of drought, more extreme conditions more often. And so I think there's a range of reactions that we need to follow across the sort of spectrum of, of, of planning and preparedness. Some of those are in land management. We are talking about those before. Some of them are in federal-state relations, as Michael was talking about. Some of them are in building the sort of backstopping capacity and response capacity uh, that Brendan referred to. Some of them are around um, how we manage public health emergencies, mm-hmm. which I guess we've had a lot of other practice at more recently, and, and developing those in ways that are sort of mutually supportive and reinforced forcing rather than perhaps operating in um, more as uh, siloed than mm. that uh, they might have been in the past. I don't see a fundamental change in the challenges that we face, but uh, we're going to need to be, as the COAG report said back in 2004, we're going to need to build much more informed community, your reference to children experiencing emergency response, Mm. have to build that into the way that we think about living in this country because that's what we're going to face more often. Mm. No, it's an imagination test which is quite interesting. Now, Brendan, you've written a little bit about strategic imagination and and I think it would be worthwhile really fleshing this out a little. Can you give us your thoughts on, on that catchphrase? The way I think about it is that we live in the world as it is and that's how we understand things. But we also build policies to create futures. And we often build policies on assumptions about the world which we don't think deeply enough about. And so to me, there's always a tension between um, what I call imagination, the worlds that we want to create, and the world as it is, and how do we build pathways into the future. And I think that one of the great dangers is that we often overvalue continuity. Uh, we overvalue the present. The present is always stronger than the future, uh, and we don't think broadly enough. In the context of this conversation, to me, the really big issue that comes through the Royal Commission report is our collective and individual understanding of risk. And communities have different perceptions of risk. Mm. State and Commonwealth governments have different understandings of risk, and so do the institutions. But what I think the report is saying when it says it's a challenge to strategic imagination, it's a challenge to us as an Australian community to think about 
this change as a whole from a whole of community perspective and then to operationalize that in the context of specific places, locations and activities, but with that sense of, of the whole. So I think what the Royal Commission report is saying is we need to take a strategic view, a large view and a view where the future has a much larger voice in current policy uh, than we currently have and that some of the policy assumptions that underpin our current structures and processes are challenged. And when I say policy assumptions, assumptions about the nature of change, assumptions about the adequacy of response, assumptions about you know land management and so on, mm. uh, these need to be tested and really scrutinised with a perspective from the future, not from the present. Mm. It's a theme that comes up on this podcast not infrequently is the short-termism that's built into quite a lot of our policy framework, and that's a, yeah. a real challenge of trying to see the lens of a future. None of this is new uh, in the sense that we knew that these sorts of things were going to happen, and we were prepared, but were we sufficiently prepared and have we done enough? Mm. Michael, what are your thoughts on strategic imagination? I come from a particular response focus, but I think the the response agencies have been thinking about this for a long time. Mark Crosswell, a former head of EMA, used to talk about how do we deal with an event that's beyond our experience, imagination, and there was another phrase there, but I can't quite remember it to quote him properly. So I think the services have been thinking about this for a long time. I think the problem is, or I think there are many problems. I think in terms of that, uh, governments and communities have different perceptions of risk. For governments, the risk is with the next election. And so that's the risk they're facing. How do we win the electoral popularity? So you want to talk about recognising the change in climate. The Royal Commission might say that, but certainly governments aren't fully on board to that yet. We have a community that takes its information from a huge range of sources. So people like us can sit here and go, we need to you know, have a better informed community. But the, the evidence certainly in this COVID pandemic is a whole huge section of the community doesn't want to listen to experts like us. Again, it comes back to this question that I started right at the start when we talk about we, as if we're an homogenous whole. And there just isn't an homogenous whole. Everybody's got a different perspective because they're facing a different risk. That it's important to, to realise for those who have to respond, these conversations have been going on for a long time. And what it takes is for an event like this to bring it to the attention of the community who, are, who we're, I mean, we're all doing it. There are huge risks in our lives and we all just focus on the ones that seem imminent to us. There are other sectors I've always thought who would hold a very similar conversation and wonder why they can't get the community involved in paying attention to their superannuation or their health or whatever it is until something dramatic happens. So this is the dramatic thing that's brought this into focus. But then it's been, you know, now we've got COVID that's grabbing the attention. I think the agencies are engaged in this strategic thinking and have been for a long time. It takes an event like this to bring others to realise where they're at. So with the workshops that we've hosted recently, a few of us used scenario-based uh, approaches to that. And that's how I guess I've interpreted some of the issues around imagination and it's how I reflect on our failure to prepare for uh, bushfire smoke was that I think if we'd sat down and uh, gamed our way through or talked our way through the summer ahead, we would potentially have had a much better appreciation of the risks. Um, and when I say we, I'm talking about those of us who are in a position to influence the community response, to reduce risks involved with these sorts of scenarios. And so the scenario that I used in the workshop was a similar scenario to Black Summer. We had a drought. We had towns running out of water. 
we really don't know how to run health systems where we've run out of water, where the hospitals can continue to really provide clinical services in that environment. And then we had fire and smoke. And then I finished with a dust storm, which I had made up until I read about it in The Lancet, uh, where there'd been a case report of a, a huge dust storm that killed nine people in northern China, 380 million hectares of land uh, exposed to hazardous dust storms and terrible air pollution. Um, and so these are some of the tests that we might need to have for our imagination and think about how our own systems respond and how our communities can be best prepared. And I think part of the key to this is actually making it a community conversation, not about us, but about them and about, about everybody participating. As I recall it, and I don't have the documents in front of me, but as I recall it, in the 2009 Royal Commission into the Black Saturday fires in Victoria, it was revealed that the federal government and the governments had workshopped a whole lot of disasters and they'd shelved it because of a concern that the community would be too concerned. They had tsunamis into Wollongong and all sorts of things. And that came out in the Royal Commission. So people are gaming these things and thinking them through. I don't think it's a matter of people not thinking about it. It's a matter of, of governments in particular having being willing to stand up to communities and going, there are times when we're not going to be here. There are times when we are not going to help and meeting it. So that was a theme that came up in our workshop is how you balance uh, overwhelming scenarios. And the summer we went through as often described, at least in parts, as being quasi-apocalyptic. It was a difficult, difficult experience. We know the psychology of that is complex. And we had Ian Walker as part of our workshop reflecting on the psychological impacts of sequential disasters and on on the, the health impacts, on the mental health impacts of things like heat. How do we use our imagination to see a future which has an increase in extreme weather events as you've begun to paint there, Peter? How do we use our imagination to look into that future without becoming overwhelmed? How do we maintain hope through that? Because I think that's how you encourage the community conversation. What sort of techniques can we learn for that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a, a body of work going on in this arena, particularly in broader response to climate change. And in the Fenner School, we spend time working with our students around hope and agency yeah. because one reaction to the scenarios are, is despair mm. and that's not a helpful response beyond a short time period. I think that if we look at the COVID challenges that we faced since Black Summer, and as Michael noted, have more or less displaced Black Summer from, from the public conversation at the moment, we see lots of reason for hope in community response, as well as occasional frustration and uh, some of the lack of coordination issues that perhaps we don't see in the emergency response, fire response arena. So I think we can find within our contemporary experience lots of elements of hope in terms of our capacity to respond and communities' capacity to respond. And of course, the stories of community support for other members of the community during and after the fires were really impressive. Uh, so that there's lots there to draw on. I guess the challenge that I think we're, we're acknowledging in this conversation is the point that Michael's made is that community, uh, as also we teach our students in the first school, is not homogenous. It's, it's uh, differentiated. The old more norms of communication uh, don't seem to apply as they did. And so there's a real challenge there for those of us who are 
working in professional and expert roles to think about how we can share that knowledge and have the sort of conversations that you're talking about. Mm. Uh, I think that's a fruitful topic for, mm. for, for further consideration. Yeah, look, I, I think it's really important to be optimistic. I mean, you can <laughs> you can construct hundreds of terrible scenarios, some of which may come true. Mm. Uh, and even if they do come true, it's not the end of the world. Mm. So to me, one of the things that policy and action needs to do is create agency to give people agency so that they are able to exercise, you know, some control and some ability to respond. But I think the, the issue that comes through as you reflect on the Royal Commission report that effective agency is built on an understanding of risk. And, and so I think it's really important to have the conversation about risk because that then creates a platform upon which people can respond. Mm. And I think that, as Michael said, everyone will have a different perception of risk. So you need to have the conversation uh, to understand the differences and the, the collective view. And then to create capacity, I think, particularly at community level for people to build response. And then the role of state and Commonwealth governments is to support that capacity for response, mm. uh, and then also to build emergency response capacity as well. Michael, what do you think? Is this a mechanism to, to inspire hope? I'm thinking of the recent election of the Deputy Prime Minister, and I'm not <laughs> sure that's inspiring any hope. <laughs> I, uh, I spent some time recently with colleagues at, at RMIT. We were talking about community resilience and adaptation programs, and that's where I'm thinking uh, that was part of my response out of the Royal Commission and out of the Black Summer experience was, was can we facilitate community discussions about about the challenges that might be ahead, particularly environmental challenges, particularly thinking about climate climate change, and and there's some models that are out there very much focused on small towns or on region regions and their responses, um, and I, I think that's where that's where you can take the Royal Commission report and put it into those small town areas, particularly those that are climate vulnerable, particularly those that are socially vulnerable, and we know from all sorts of research that it's the it's the socially vulnerable, those those who don't have the resources, who are much more likely to be seriously impacted by these sorts of events. And so giving them agency again, I think, is an important part of our response. If I can give a more serious answer, yeah. I mean, I, having thought about that a bit more, <laughs> I, mean, I think there was lots of evidence for to inspire hope in that. In fact, I think the responses worked really well. I think the, the way the agencies out there and deployed, and yes, the stories of recovery and community support are all symbols of, of hope. I think they don't involve the government nearly as much as the government would like. The people are out there and they do respond and they do lead each other in recovery. There's lots of evidence for hope. Again, focusing, recognising that my focus is very much on response rather than the preparation which others have spoke about. So one of the things that I think about is that any significant crisis is a crisis of identity and imagination before it's a crisis of policy yep. and strategy or implementation. So I think that what we're experiencing is um, a challenge to our sense of who we are as communities, the way we live, our identity, uh, and our imagination of what sort of world we live in and are going into. And I think that the conversation needs to, to some extent, take place at that level. And then the question then becomes, well, what do we do about it? Mm. And that's the policy conversation. Mm. And I think that often we can put the policy conversation before we actually think about 
our situation and the nature of the world that we're in and the change that we want to see. So whenever I'm teaching strategy, I always say, try and look at the world as it is because that's the foundation for change. But you also need to have a vision of the change that you want to create. And sometimes that can challenge your sense of identity, your sense of community. And I think that's where the really challenging discussions are. But that's also where I think there's you know great room for optimism because mm. you do see lots of activity at mm. that level. We uh, recently had uh, Millie Rooney from Australia Remade on the podcast, and Millie does a lot of work working with communities, looking at the common ground on a on a on a small scale. Mm. And the things that we have in common are greater than we give credit for. So I think finding that those common shared experiences that help us to craft the future, again, that's a message I, that I I read from this Royal Commission report. Can I can I pick that thread up because I'd like to come back to the partnership between traditional owners mm. and land managers, you know, there are many reasons to work towards reconciliation in a practical as well as a symbolic sense. And we've got some experience of that in Northern Australia in the Savannah burning programs for a range of reasons. We're only really now beginning to develop those possibilities further in Southern Australia. But I think that looking to the future of land management, that's a set of partnerships that are going to be important, not just for land management, but mm. for the broader future of Australian society. And and we, one of the virtuous circles that we could build out of the ashes of, uh, of the Black Summer. Oh, that's a really great point to make. Um, I think we could continue this conversation for quite some time. I know there's a lot of uh, stuff that's been discussed in the workshops and beforehand, uh, but we will need to bring this to a close. And we'd like to finish with one question, uh, asking people to think about what their favourite piece of advice is. So if we reflect on the Royal Commission International Natural Disaster Arrangements, can you offer us your favourite recommendation or theme from the document? What's one? What's the one bit that policymakers really shouldn't ignore? Michael? I'm mindful that I come to it with a limited focus as a, as a lawyer rather than all the big issues. And look, my problem with the Royal Commission report, I'm going to go a bit off question here, is that you started with about how it was all set up to investigate various things. But if you read the letters patent, it was established to identify what the role, I mean, it's a, a Royal Commission national natural disasters. It was about the Commonwealth government. The states joined in, but it was all about what should the Commonwealth be doing? How should the Commonwealth be acting? It wasn't really into the whole background of the event, though the Royal Commissioners, you know, given freedom, certainly moved into it. I think what the Royal Commission recommended that was most important to me was about the need for the Commonwealth to have emergency management legislation. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the Commonwealth has done that. They've passed legislation. They've passed amendments to the Defence Act. I think the amendments they've made are inviting disaster. And in one or two disasters after here, the next Royal Commission will be saying, how on earth did they pass that legislation and invite what will be the what will then be the next disaster? But what they've done is pass legislation to give it so much power to the politicians to decide when and what they should be doing without regard to what the states are doing and the state emergency managers and the professionals are doing that I think they've passed legislation that completely fails to do what the Royal Commission recommended. But I don't think that's surprising. So, favourite pieces of policy advice, Peter? 
I think that there's a series of recommendations around uh, land management um, and those partnerships between land managers, public or private, and in traditional owners. And I think there's so many reasons to pursue those that respond to the the reason for the Royal Commission, but also go beyond it. So that's where my flag is. Excellent. Brendan? Look, for me, the really important part of the Royal Commission was its highlighting of the reality that the risk of future disasters is not going to diminish, it's going to increase, Mm -hmm. and that means that we need as a community to think very differently about how we respond to them and that it's not a challenge for policy and process, as they say, it's a challenge to community strategic imagination about where it is, what it is, and where it's going. So I think that was a really important part of it because most of the other recommendations we've seen before, as yep. people have said. Yep. Well, I have to finish up uh, the conversation here. So it's been so good to have the three of you in the studio today talking about the Royal Commission and reflecting on the Black Summer experience. I do think we learn from these experiences and I do hope that it prepares us better for the for the next one. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today, Peter, Brendan, Michael. Thanks for the time. Pleasure. Thanks, Greta. And so we come to the end of our conversation around the Royal Commission International Natural Disaster Arrangements. And I think the themes that really emerge from today's discussion are that the sort of summer we experienced in with Black Summer was unprecedented, and yet our preparation could have been better. I think we will be seeing these sorts of summer experiences and national disasters occur uh, with an increasing frequency and that catchphrase of an increase in extreme weather events is what we know is associated with the changing climate. So it is a time for us to use our imagination about what the future might look like and to use that imagination process, the strategic imagination, to inspire hope and new ways of responding. So, listeners, thank you so much for listening today. Please, we love feedback and it's always great for, to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group. We're on Facebook at Policy Forum Pod. If you type that into the search bar, you'll find us and we love to hear from you. Please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you choose. And we love to hear reviews and feedback from you. So listeners, we'll be back next week with a very exciting beginning to our mini-series on leadership uh, as we approach the prospect of a federal election in Australia at some point in the next 12 months or so. We thought it was an excellent opportunity for us to reflect on leadership now, leadership's past, and leadership that we might see in the future. And so uh, it'll be fantastic to be back with Sharon Bessel next week launching that leadership mini-series uh, next Friday. So we will see you then. Bye-bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.